You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. G.K. Chesterton once wrote that I had always felt life first as a story, and if there is a story, there is a storyteller. Kind of interesting to think about life as a story, and if there is a story, and there's a storyteller. In our text today, the Apostle Paul calls attention to the storyteller. Um, let's open up our Bibles back to that passage that Tom Rodder read for us earlier in the service, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. If you're uh, grabbing the Pew Bible, please turn to page 967. I'd just like you to notice a few things as we talk today about the storyteller. Quick review. Uh, we're in a series called Five Markers of Discipleship. It's about how we become the people God made us to be. Last week, I we talked about patterns in our lives. They're bundled uh, uh, decisions and, and beliefs and behaviors. That's what, a, that's what a habit is. It's a pattern that we bundle up for convenience. Um, and we, our habits can help us, but they can also get in our way. And so discipleship, as I said, is the process of moving the good news to the center of our lives, because when we do that, uh, we start to unpack some of those beliefs and decisions, and as we do that, we displace them with better beliefs and better decisions, and there's a new pattern, therefore, in our life. Now, the Apostle Paul, the beginning of this text, it's in front of you today, actually describes the contrast between two patterns. Uh, the beginning of the verse, uh, passage, uh, uh, verse 2, you see he's got a vice list bunch of behaviors that we don't really want in our lives. And then at verse 10, there's a virtue list, a bunch of behaviors that we'd rather like to have in our lives. These are two patterns. On the one hand, there are those who are advancing from bad to worse, he says in verse 2. There's irony there. They're advancing, but from bad to worse. And then in, uh, that's in verse 13. That's that first group. And then verse 17, we have the second group that are being equipped for every good work. So the two different directions that are following from two different patterns. And the Apostle Paul goes to Timothy, I want you to know which one you are. And I want you to understand the difference between these two patterns is what story you have at the center of your life, what story you're living in. Now, this verse 16, which is really the heart of the, of the chapter, says all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is inspired by God. He's telling us that the story is the Bible, uh, that the subject uh, of the story is Jesus Christ, we get that in verse 15, and that the storyteller is God. God is the storyteller. All scripture is inspired by God. So I want to talk with you about that. Two things in principle. The first is this insistence, and I do think Paul is absolutely insisting that to live with any part of the story, God's story, we have to be rooted in the whole story. To live with any part of God's story, we have to be rooted in the whole of God's story. To live with every part of the story. See, all, he says, all, all scripture is inspired. This reminded me of a movie I saw recently. I just kind of stumbled across as this quirky old movie, and it's about four guys who know each other because they commute on the train together, and they sit in a little compartment, knee to knee, with their briefcases on their laps every day as they go to work. And um, it's kind of about what happens to these four men. There's this theme that recurs, though, in the movie, and it's where uh, one of them is telling a story that gets drowned out by a passing train. So you hear the beginning of the story, and you catch kind of just the last few words of it, but as the train passes by, 
you, the movie watcher, missed the whole thing. And you're like, so it's weird because it happens three times in the movie. I'll give you some examples. Um, one time this guy leans in. You can kind of see the story coming on his face. He's like, he's got that wind up in his, his eyes. He says, the most fabulous redhead I met on a boat to New Orleans. The first night out, there was this knock on my door. And then the train starts to roar by the windows. But you see, and you see these four guys leaning in. Uh, their lips are moving and they're reacting uh, dramatically on their faces. And then the train passes and you just hear the very end of it. And we never did find that other shoe. <laughs> you kind of go, wow, what is that? Another time, same guy, he raises his eyebrows and he says, what does life have to offer? Different people look for different values. There are any number of countries, and then the train roars by, and then you hear, primarily for their health. <laughs> and you go, what was that about? Another time, he clears his throat, he's winding up again, and he starts in on another story. I knew three brothers once who were dating the same woman. Till that time, they were the most devoted and wonderful group of guys you could know. The oldest one was the best looking, and the younger one, and then the train comes crashing by, and you watch them, lips are moving, eyes are reacting, and then the train is gone, came to an early grave, he says, Chris. <laughs> and another one with an ironic smile says, what a terrible way to go. And it makes you very curious, because you don't have all the story, see? Without any, in every part of the story, you can't get all of the story. The meaning of the story is in all of its parts. So you got to get all of it. That's why Paul's insisting all scripture is inspired. And I wonder if maybe the trouble we have with the Bible is that so often we just get parts of the story. Um, the parts we think we understand, the parts we think we like, uh, or the parts we just happen to read. I uh, came across the story of a woman who came for advice, marriage advice, from her pastor. She really wanted the pastor to say, you go ahead and divorce this guy. Um, but her pastor said, but before you think any more about this, I want you to read the Bible and try to understand what that is to say about your marriage. So the woman came back to the pastor the next week, having done some reading, and the pastor asked her, what did you learn? And the woman said, well, I read Colossians 3.9. It says, put off the old man with his deeds. And then I read Luke 10, 37. It says, go and do likewise. And John 13, 27 says, what you are about to do, do quickly. Um, not maybe getting the whole thing with that. Paul says, all. I want you to get all. Um, by the way, there's a little footnote here. It says it can be translated every. I don't want you to spend too much time on every. Uh, the problem with that little interpretation, if, if you happen to see it in your Bible, is that it doesn't take full account of the word and. And I'm not going to say anything more about that because it would just take time and be a distraction. The, 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 the text really reads well. All scripture is inspired. Now, uh, there are two reasons why the word all is important here. And that is because Paul wants Timothy to know about the origin. All is important because of its origin. And all is important because of its effect. In other words, where the Bible comes from and what it leads to. Where does the Bible come from? Well, it's this kind of combination of things that are really ordinary and things that are absolutely extraordinary in this passage that combine. There's a lot of ordinary language. By the way, the word Bible just means book. So we have to use to say holy Bible if we want to set it apart from any other book. It's just an ordinary word for book. That's what Bible means. And then Paul, likewise, he talks here about uh, graphe or writings. That's another way of speaking of the Bible, but it just simply means texts. And then he speaks even of letters, like the little characters on a page, uh, grammata, which just means alphabetic, alphabetic expressions. And so in one sense, this is just a book. These are just writings. 
these are just letters on a page, uh, but they're also extraordinary. The word he uses that is mind-boggling here about the scriptures is that they are God-breathed, and that's a single word in Greek, God-breathed. Uh, this means, I think, that God is the storyteller in this strange and sometimes awkward collections of texts. God is the storyteller. It's inspired by God. Paul here doesn't tell us how it is that multiple human authors in all kinds of diverse contexts could come up with something that he would want to say is God-breathed. Um, Peter will give us a little bit of, of insight. He says men and women led by the Holy Spirit would write the scriptures. And, and yet, he's, it just asserts that it is true in the mystery of it that God is uh, the author, that this is the book, these letters are literally the breath of God, uh, the exhale of God. Um, he's inspired it. Which isn't to say that he looked at words and breathed inspiration into them. No, he literally breathed the words into existence, like the prophets who used to say, thus saith the Lord. Paul goes, that's what this book is, these scriptures. He's talking about primarily in this immediate context, the old, what we would call the Old Testament. Um, that was the only scriptures that they had when Paul writes this letter to his protege, Timothy. And yet, Paul would urge that his own letters elsewhere be read in worship, which is what you did with Scripture at that time. And Peter would say that Paul's, uh, would refer to Paul's letters as Scripture. So even early on, there's this sense that the writers of the New Testament are somehow participating mysteriously in this God-breathed Bible as they write. It's ordinary, yet it's extraordinary. You may wonder, how did Jesus think about the Bible? What did, what was the Bible to Jesus? And, uh, in the last century, great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield did an exhaustive study of how Jesus refers to the Old Testament, the scriptures, and also his contemporaries. And in, in this book, B.B. Warfield has a chapter called, It Says, Scripture Says, God Says. Um, and the bottom line of it is that he notices that for these uh, citations, the word scripture and God were absolutely interchangeable. As though what God said is exactly what scripture says, and what scripture says is exactly what God is saying. Uh, for example, uh, we read in Matthew 19.5, Jesus said, God said, and then Jesus just quotes from Genesis 2. Uh, or the, the reverse, in Galatians 3.8, we see Paul Although God is the one who spoke to Abraham directly, he writes that the scriptures declared the gospel to Abraham. That's interesting. It says the scriptures declared the gospel to Abraham, but it was really God who spoke directly to Abraham as I read it. So what God says, the scriptures say, and what the scriptures say, God says. We have a living storyteller who uses his word in every part. Uh, so we want to pay attention to all of it. We want to live with every part of the story because of its origin. But then let's think about its effect, because Paul does. He goes on to uh, talk about its effect in our lives, and the really good effects. Um, and again, Paul is insistent here. I, I want to suggest that Paul first insists that to live with any part of the story, we have to be rooted in the whole, all. But now he insists that the whole story is to give life to every part of our lives, bearing fruit in the whole. He uses this word salvation. Salvation is, is about the outcome of your life as a result of the grace of Jesus Christ. And look what he says in verse 15. The sacred writings, that's the scripture, the Bible, are able to instruct you for salvation through faith 
in Christ Jesus. The effect is salvation in your life. So he's saying it's not just all because it's a complete story. It's also all because it's also addressing the story of your life in all of its completeness. I want your salvation to be full. And in that sense, I want your salvation to touch every part of who you are. Your story is at stake here. I thought about this movie, and I thought afterwards, I thought, why would the director have taken time to put these scenes in with meaningless stories? These commuters are telling stories to each other that the reader, viewer, rather, never perceives. You know, you know, you know there's a story there. You hear just a little that there's a word here, that there's a, a fact, and there's a little twist of plot, but you can't get the meaning. We don't know what those stories are because we don't hear them all. Why put those into a movie? I think the reason is, what the director is cleverly saying is, that the characters in this movie don't know their own stories. That's what you find out as the wider plot unfolds. That they're a stranger to their own stories. They don't know the power of boredom in their life, for example. They don't know their great need for love. They don't understand that they have friendship. Uh, that's really the most valuable thing. So. I, I think it, it raises the question for me as to whether I adequately understand the story of my own life when I don't read the Bible or read it in full. We have the same questions that they that we have about these characters in this movie. Our questions are, who are we? Why are we here? What is this about, this thing we call life? What drives us? Where are we heading? And we ought to ask ourselves, who has the right to tell us what the stories of our lives ought to be about? You're living out of some story. Your life has some meaning to you. But who told you that story? Was it your parents? Was it a teacher? Was it your peers? Is it advertisers? Are you an economic digit? Are you just a biological blip? What's the meaning of your life? Who has a right to say? Well, Paul insists it's only God who has made himself known in Jesus Christ. And it's only as we get to know Jesus Christ in every aspect of who we are, that we discover the story of our lives. But let's be honest, there's some parts of the Bible that we would rather not read, let alone think about. There's some hard parts of the Bible. Doesn't it contradict? Isn't it confusing? Aren't there places that are regressive in the Bible? There was a man uh, traveling on an airplane, and he noticed a little girl beside him reading her Bible, and he said, you don't, you don't really believe everything in that book, do you? And she said, oh, yes, I do. He said, you don't believe the part about like Jonah that he got swallowed by a whale. You don't believe that, do you? And she said, well, I don't, I don't really know, but maybe someday when I get to heaven, I can, I can ask him, you know, if that really happened. And the guy goes, what, what if you don't see Jonah in heaven? She says, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Charles Taylor, uh, great Canadian philosopher who's alive today wrote a landmark book published by Harvard in 2007 called A Secular Age. And uh, we're going to address it more when we come to a series after Easter called Doubting Doubts. But I just want to whet your appetite right now that the, the whole framing question for Charles Taylor's book is why was it in 1500 that it seemed so easy for everyone just to believe in God, just accept that? And yet only 500 years later, it seems so hard to believe in God. And everybody generally accepts that that's the exception of the rule.
What shifted? And in short, to be crass and greatly overreduce Taylor's work, it's simply this. It's that we're living in a different story today. We're living in a different story. And we tend to come to the Bible uh, and only reading or engaging with the parts that already affirm what we already believe. This is the canon within the canon, the part of the Bible within the part of the Bible that we accept as our Bible. The problem with that, that is it will not lead us to salvation. What it will do is only double down or reconfirm our own uh, preconceptions and maybe misconceptions about these big questions. Salvation requires us to read a Bible that challenges us, that doesn't always agree with us, that moves us into a, a different story, into God's story, into a story that is a good story we call the gospel. So that's why Paul continues the sentence in verse 16 where he says the Bible is useful or valuable or profitable for four things, teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Teaching is the gospel. That's the good news. For Paul, it's the gospel. It comes up at the beginning of this chapter and the beginning of the whole letter. He, he elaborates on it. Reproof and correction start to sound a little uncomfortable, don't they? Reproof is about refutation of error. Uh, correction is about claiming truth, a new truth. Training in righteousness, it, the Greek word there is paideia, like we get pediatrician from, it's the word for child. And this is a picture of a parent who's nurturing a child and raising them up in that parent's love to be mature. Training in righteousness. This is what Jesus would have called discipleship. It's moving the gospel to the center of our lives and growing up organically to maturity and bear fruit. The whole story is to give life to every part of our lives to bear fruit in the whole of our lives. Tim Keller says, if this were true that the Bible, this book, really represented God's story, and it's a, that it would be therefore a transcultural story, and it would have to be that it would conflict, impinge upon uh, all other cultures at some point. Because human cultures are changing, they're, they're fallible, and therefore, as you and I read the Bible, no matter what our culture is, we ought to find at some point that it will offend us. At some point, it will be hard for us to believe. It will challenge us. And, and, and Keller goes on to say, this is actually what you would want if you have a real relationship with God. If your relationship is not real, then your relationship is like, and this is his illustration, the Stepford Wives. Remember the Stepford Wives? <clears throat> Some of you are old enough to remember the original Stepford Wives which is this dystopian suburban neighborhood in which men don't have living wives, they have robots who just say yes sir and do whatever the guys want. The point is that's not a real relationship. And if your idea of God agrees with you at every point, then you don't have a real relationship with God. You have a step for God. And Paul says, well, you should expect correction, reproof. You should expect um, to have your mind changed as you read this. Uh, Training in righteousness. So growth is the effect of the Bible. When we expose every part of our lives to every part of the Bible, fruit comes. Chesterton, therefore, is right. Life is a story. Your life is a story. And God is a storyteller. And, and I think this is the point for me. I mean, if the one telling the story throughout the whole Bible is the one also telling the story throughout your whole life, then I'm not sure you ever get the meaning of your life per se, but I know if you really want to grow and become the person God has created you to be, 
You have to know the storyteller. And it's in that way that Paul says we'll be equipped for every good work in verse 17. Timothy, I want you to know the storyteller. Just imagine for a moment the setting for this letter. This is the end of Paul's life. Paul's in, in prison. He's going to be executed by the Romans. Paul refers to Timothy as his son in the faith. Timothy is his mentee. It's his partner in ministry and adopted son. And Timothy's sitting there reading this letter going, don't go. I can't live without you, Paul. I can't imagine me without you. You have given meaning to my life. You changed the shape of my life. I am who I am today because of you. And Paul's writing back saying, be careful, Timothy. That's not true. This has never been about me. This has never been about you. This story that you're living in is about Jesus Christ. It's about him. And I may leave, but he will never leave you. And so he's calling Timothy back to the book, back to the story. So discipleship is about being rooted in God's word. That's the first of the five markers that we're looking at, being rooted in God's word. This is language that our elders are using. And they're taking it from Luke 8, where Jesus in his parable of the soil says that the word of God is the seed of the kingdom. The word of God, the kingdom comes through the word of God. It's the seed of the kingdom. And through uh, Psalm 1, it says, those who meditate on God's word will be like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither, and all they do they prosper. Two days ago, I was with a, um, a businessman who'd done well in business, and he came to faith later in life. And I asked him, how'd that happen? And he said, well, and I tell you, I didn't say anything about what I was preaching. He said, it was the Bible. I said, really? Explain that to me. He said, well, I was kind of an obnoxious pagan to the Christians in my life, and I used to argue with them all the time. And they started to say, you know what? Um, I don't know how you can have so many opinions about a book you've never read. So if we're going to continue to have arguments with one another, I'm just going to insist that you read the Bible. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll read this Bible. Pff, I read the... So he said, I started, George, by the time I got to Second Peter, I realized I was a believer. <laughs> and I knew Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying. This book can do. And he said, I just wanted everybody to have Jesus. His life is rooted in God's word and continues to grow and bear fruit today because of it. He's being equipped for every good work. Now, let me, let me say this. The reason this is is that the book helps us to meet the storyteller. The book is about Jesus Christ from beginning to end. And the truth is, Jesus doesn't want you to be a step for disciple. He wants you to be a co-author of this story. See, God is the great storyteller, but he's given you responsibility and creative access to the same story he's writing. You're a co-author with him. So, so I think a lot of times we have this idea that the Bible just gives us a list of instructions. Well, be careful with that. That would just turn you into a Stepford disciple. So many of you are readers. Many of you are big readers. And some of you have read certain favorite authors in toto. In other words, you've got a favorite author, you just read everything that she writes. Uh, maybe J.K. Rowling or C.S. Lewis or David Foster Wallace. Someone you're fascinated with. And you just keep reading their stuff over and over and over again. And you get to a point, if you do that where uh, you start to think the way they think. You start to know how they would react to a certain set of circumstances. You actually take in their mind because it, it, it reshapes your mind. And I think that's the way in which those who are rooted in God's word begin to see their life change. 
They'd understand Jesus so well. They know what Jesus would think in this situation. They know what Jesus would do in this situation because they're reading the story. Be a co-author. The other thing I, I think it means to be rooted in God's word is to understand the whole context of Scripture. There, there'll be times, of course, like me, when you read a verse in the Bible or a passage, you go, I don't get this, and if I do get it, I don't like it, and I wish it weren't here. What do you do when you face something like that? I want to encourage you to put it in context of the whole. The Bible has four great movements, creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. Think about how that passage might fit into one of these four movements. Creation, you're good because God loved you into existence. You're good, you're valuable to God. Fall, even though that's true, you have a rebel heart and you're under judgment. Redemption, you're not under judgment anymore in Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation for you because uh, of God's grace. You've been forgiven. Renewal. No matter how stuck you are in life, God is making all things new. The one who comes back at the end of history is with you during history. Taking these passages and putting them in their context uh, will help you understand, remember this is the goal, who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. The good news is that ultimately the author steps into our story through the incarnation. God has become a part of, of the story. Think about who this author is. He is the storyteller who brings order out of chaos, who provides dry ground, parts the sea on which we can walk. He uh, slays our Goliath with little boys. He turns water into wine. He brings life out of death. And I know you may not understand your story, that maybe you just get some hurtful words or some beguiling facts or painful plot twists. But we do know the storyteller. We do know the one who gives us hope because he makes all things new. The close of one last story, there was a, uh, a playwright who used to do productions, an actor actually, and he would, um, he was Elizabethan, he would do these old English um, uh, one-man shows, and at the end of the show, he would recite Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And, and at the end of that, it was a crowd pleaser, and people would cheer. One day, apparently, he invited uh, a volunteer from the audience to come and read Psalm 23 uh, in his place, and a boy volunteered, and he read in a very plain, quiet voice. But when he got to the end of Psalm 23, there was no applause. There was just a holy silence. And tears were coming to people's eyes. And the actor couldn't understand why this was. And so he asked the boy, what happened there? And the boy said, well, you know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. Same is true for us. Let's go back to the book and meet the storyteller. Would you pray with me? God, speak to us. We so desperately need your word in our lives. Create space between all the tasks and the busyness for us to quiet our souls and listen to you. Not just the ancient words, but the contemporary voice. Would you speak to us? Speak to us. For your servants are listening. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
sing this chorus with us. God, in a world in which there are so many words, endless, endless words, sound and fury, information everywhere, we come before you today to admit that uh, we're like a deer in the wilderness panting for water, for living water, for that word, that one word, which is our Savior, Jesus Christ, who alone can refresh our souls and give us life and a new way to live. We pray that today you will help us to be a community that reads and embodies and shares your word so that we might all find hope in Jesus Christ. We pray in a political season that is uh, tearing us apart and creating exacerbating divisions that you'll help us to find our unity in the one who made this world, redeemed this world, and will one day make it new. We pray for places of hurt and violence where people are displaced, where people are hungry, where people are suffering under oppression, injustice, racism. We pray that you'll bring your healing peace, salvation in the fullest sense. Let your kingdom come. We pray for those who are losing or have lost loved ones. We pray for the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to come and give them strength. We pray for those among us who are wrestling with depression and anxiety. We pray for that peace that you yourself promised during your earthly ministry, peace that does not come from the world, peace that the world does not understand, but the peace that you freely give. You gave it to your disciples when you were risen from the dead and blew on them the gift of your Holy Spirit, so blow on us today. Let your Holy Spirit come and fill us. We thank you for our children, those you've entrusted to us. We pray that we will embody this family, a family of all ages, a family of many cultures and ethnicities, a family that crosses boundaries of disagreement. Help us to nurture these children help us to nurture one another. We pray for our small groups this fall as they're forming. Pray that you'll be ministering to those brothers and sisters in Christ who have an experience of family in homes and coffee shops around this city. We pray that they will be equipped by you for every good work and that as they go to work, your hope will go with them and that you'll draw other people to Jesus Christ as we lift him up. We pray this in his name, and we pray the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us.
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.